Got to catch the game on the go? No worries. Metro has you covered. Switch to Metro and get coast-to-coast coverage on a network that covers 99% of the people in the U.S. Now you'll catch all the action almost anywhere you go. Plus, you'll save a ton over what you're paying with Verizon or the other big guy. Switch to Metro and get on a big network for way less. Coverage may vary, so please see the store for details. Now's the time to score big with Metro. Switch and get on a big network for way less. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. Hey, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in New York with Jeff Hornacek, who for the first time talks about his time as the Knicks coach, also his years with the Suns and a long and distinguished NBA playing career and all-star with the Phoenix Suns and a part of two NBA finalists with the Utah Jazz. A terrific visit with Jeff Hornacek. Here we go. Welcome into Jeff Hornacek, former NBA All-Star guard, two-time NBA coach with the Suns and Knicks. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. You enjoying being back in the cold of New York after your <laughs> your commuting lifestyle between Phoenix and San Diego? Yeah, I've been back and forth quite a bit, but uh, it's good to get the sun and uh, relaxation there. And then you come back to New York and you can handle all the uh, all the things that are going on here and the activity. So uh, it's a good balance. You're a two-time All-Star Weekend three-point shooting contest winner. I think Bird won it more than once. How many guys have won it more than once? Not many. Uh, I think it was Bird, Hodges. I think there's someone else in there that won it a couple times. Um, but the biggest thing for me, I was, you know, those are my last two years in the league. And uh, at that point, when they, I, had, I had done the three-point contest when I was you know, younger, probably seven, eight years prior to that. And I had watched Danny Ainge the year before. And I always thought my game was kind of like Danny's. You know, we kind of half jumped on our shot. <laughs> and, you know, how are you going to get off these thirty shots or twenty-five shots in in a, in a minute? Uh, and I watched Danny just take the set shot. And so I said, okay, I didn't even practice for it. I just went and did the did the competition, and I took a set shot, which was not my normal shot, and I wasn't very good. <laughs> I don't think I maybe maybe six or seven. You know, it was it was horrible. And so when they asked me at the end of my career, I was like, nah, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do this. Go, you know, take the weekend. But my kids were at an age where they were enjoying the games. Now they're, I don't know, they were probably seven and nine and my daughter was probably four at the time. And so I said, you know what? I'll do it for them. Uh, and, and one of the things that, you know, was great and besides the winning it was, I took the kids to the meetings. You know, you have this little meeting prior to it. And, and this is where the one thing that I always stood out in my mind, you know, Allen Iverson had come in the league and, you know, all of his reputation and this and that. And, uh, you know, you come into these meetings and all the guys, I brought the kids and we sat on the opposite side of the room just to kind of get them out of the way a mm-hmm. little bit. And guys would come in and say, Hey, Jeff, what's going on? How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, you kind of wave to them. And Allen Iverson was, I think, the last one to come in. He walked across the room, shook my hand, shook the kids of the, uh, my mm-hmm. kids' hands, and I'm like, "All right, this, you know, because you don't know the kid, you <laughs> right, just hear right. stuff on." So I was pretty impressed by that. Of you know, here he is to take the time and come over and, and say hi. But uh, it was fun for the kids uh, to, to go through that, and you know, it's you'll see a video. They probably show it still of the one and. You know, I have three kids, and they're all different in their ways. You know, kids are all, they're never the same. And uh, my analytical kid, he's counting on his fingers how many I'm making it. 
my uh, uh, kid that's, you know, kind of really enthusiastic. He's jumping up and down, <laughs> raising his arms, and my daughter's just kind of, you know, she's four, so she's just looking. So uh, it was a great time for us. You know, it's funny how All-Star Weekend, your era of player, I think even from where you were at the end and then back, All-Star Weekend was important because for a lot of guys who didn't play for the Lakers or Boston or Philly, who weren't really on TV all the time or didn't get exposure, like being in a three-point contest, being in the dunk contest was, it was important for your career. And now, like, you look at the dunk contest and you go... There are guys who are, some guys are barely even rotation players in the league. But I think then the All-Star Weekend was, it could change your stature in the league. It doesn't exist like that anymore. But then it was, it was a big deal, right? Yeah. You know, you didn't have as many players either on a team. Uh, you know, my first couple of years, I think we had 12 guys on the roster. And so, uh, to me, that my rookie year, you go and you play the, the Lakers and they got four all-star Hall of Fame type guys. You played Boston Celtics. It's that every game you played, there was three or four all-stars on a team. Uh, so it was very difficult. But then the league expanded and, and uh, uh, you know, spread that out a little bit. But, you know, I think it was when you look at Tom Chambers. You know, I thought Tom was a, a great player, an all-star. And then they had the all-star game where he was the MVP. Uh, and then coming out of that MVP game, we were lucky enough to uh, sign him as a free agent in Phoenix. And going around towns, he was like Michael Jordan. I mean, people were following him around. And I think it was because he was the MVP of that game. Uh, you know, like you said, he elevated from being a great player to, hey, this guy's a superstar and everybody's looking at him. And, uh, you know, so I think you're right in that way. It can elevate your careers. Six guys won the three-point shooting contest multiple times. Mark Price in there, maybe? Yep. All right. Yeah, so, Mark's in there. all right. Mark Price, Jeff Hornacek. Bird. Larry Allen do it a couple times, nope. is it? No. Nope. Larry Bird, Peja, and Jason Capono. Oh, yeah. I forgot about yeah, Capono. I remember that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I remember there was a year Capono was shooting like 50% on threes. And I remember his agent, Greg Lawrence, I remember they were really fighting to get him in the contest because the league, he might have been around the minimum. I don't know if he was around the minimum of attempts, but I wouldn't have thought of Capono was a two-time winner. I was disappointed and invite me back for a third time because I had won it the last year. Then I retired. Yeah, maybe well, brought me out of retirement and go out one more time. Well, that's what I asked. I, I had, get the invite. <laughs> yeah, I had I had Steph Curry on the pod a couple weeks ago, and so Steph and Seth are going to be in it. And I said, I asked Steph if he gave Dell just one rack of balls, gave him one rack like on a corner three, could he beat you guys with one rack one time? And he said, Yeah. He said, Like with like the money ball, throw the money ball into it. He's like, He could do it. Yeah. Like he, he, he wouldn't be able shoot. to make it around the. But in one rack, one time, yeah. That's yeah. a shooting family right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeff, being back in New York now, after having been let go last year, two seasons with the Knicks, and, and they're into a season now where it's it's really cratered. I mean, it's uh, uh, you played you know, about half of last year without Porzingis. When you look back now at your time there and sort of the runway you really had to try to get it turned around, try to implement your values, your culture, how you wanted to play. You look back at it and, and, and think what right now? Well, first of all, I thought it was a great experience. Uh, you know, as a player, I love to play in New York. You know, uh, there was one point in my career that uh, when I was playing for the Sixers, I thought I was getting traded to New York. And so uh, I was pretty excited about coming here. Uh, obviously played against Phil in the finals as, as a coach. Uh 
Um, and just the atmosphere around the garden. Uh, I, I think the fans are, are really knowledgeable here. And, you know, I can remember those years that we came here as an opponent and how much they, they actually cheered and they appreciated good basketball. And so I was hoping to, you know, come here and, and maybe get it turned around. And, you know, it's been a long time. They had a couple of years with Mike in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, since the Larry Johnson days, uh, uh, they haven't had many. So, um, you know, we really took that as a challenge and thought, hey, let's get these guys back there. And, uh, you know, that first year uh, we were trying to, you know, what Phil wanted to try to do is mix his triangle principles with today's game. And so we tried to mix it up and, I probably wasn't as successful uh, uh, as I'd like to be on that. You know, we use aspects of it. Uh, he was never saying, hey, you need to go full triangle. He he saw that the game had changed, but he felt that there was a lot of parts of the triangle that uh, it's still playing basketball. I think the most difficult part of it is when you use a system like that that is predicated on a lot of reads, you got to have the guys together for a while. Mm-hmm. And so it'll take a little bit, a little bit of time, which – uh, you know, we didn't really have, and um, you know, there are times guys would would fight it because it would slow it down a little bit. Um, but we tried to bridge it; um, just didn't do it well enough. The idea too of taking on a system that you had not coached, and you have a staff that hadn't coached it, and then you've got to teach it to players. What was the challenge of that? From and, and you said like implementing parts of it, but not fully integrating it. Did it lead to confusion? Did it lead to when you're halfway in on something, you're halfway out on something else that you're trying to do? Yeah, I, you know, I think the guys uh, in today's player, they, they like the up and down game a little bit more. And it's not like Phil said, slow it down and run the triangle. You know, that, that was right. part of our, hey, on dead balls, we'll kind of run the triangle stuff. Uh, um, you know, on misses, you know, we're running. We're running right. and into the break. And, you know, the guys, uh, um, uh, there was some of that, you know, hey, why can't we just keep running and, uh, doing this, but you know that that's part of as a coach trying to get those guys to to buy into that, and we just weren't able to do it. Uh, you know, I, I think it also takes that time. You know, there's a lot of guys. Carmelo knew how to run the triangle. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a, he's a smart player, but when it gets down to it, you need five guys that are on the court to really understand all the little parts and, and the little details. And that's why I say it takes years for a group to stay together. And I think in today's game, you know, with shorter contracts, these big-time free agents are signing for one, two years so they can, you know, figure out where they're going to go next. Um, the continuity was, was just hard to do. Now, if we had that same group for three, four years, maybe would have been able to do it. But uh, in today's game, I think things have to become more immediate where you got to you know, do it right away. And that's why I think when you look around the league – a lot of teams are running the same stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, uh, the same offenses. You know, they have different different coaches put in different wrinkles, but that's the way guys are used to playing. These young kids come up, they're playing like that way in their AAU and their college. And, you know, it just makes it difficult to run a system because you need to keep those guys together for uh, a few years. From when Phil hired you and said to you, this is, here's how we're going to work together. Here's what I want from you and what I want from building and I think in Phil's mind he was building this program a style of of whether he agreed with it or disagreed with it it seemed like he had a vision of what he wanted it to look like and how he wanted it to work was there a disconnect between what you talked about how it would be and then how it evolved and played out over the two years well really we only had the one year because then Phil was gone after that and then uh, uh, you know that next year came about Uh, but 
we're trying to find that bridge, that happy medium of, hey, we're, we're still, we know the triangle stuff works. You know, he won championships. Uh, it's a new, different type of game now, yet we have a guy at Carmel who's very good at the elbow area, you know, the, the Kobe is getting that ball in that area. Uh, you know, we have Porzingis who's very good at that uh, uh, spot as a young guy. Um, but again, I think it goes back to you got to have all five guys that understand all the little things. Because there are times where guys were open in in the aspects, but they weren't ready to make that pass because they didn't see it. Uh, so you know, it, it was just a matter of uh, getting enough guys that uh, um, you know really knew the ins and outs of the reads. And uh, again, you know, it's it's maybe a little bit of an excuse that uh, that we weren't able to get it faster. But I think it takes time to feel comfortable with your teammates of when a guy's going to make that quick back cut, you know, because they're only open for a second. If you don't get that ball there then, then they're covered. Now all of a sudden you're shooting at medium range, which I know all the analytics guys love nowadays. Right. Uh, right. So, <laughs> you know, and then we came in a second year now, you know, we had a whole new team. Carmelo was, was gone. You know, we made Porzingis the focus of everything and it kind of went back to our old Phoenix offense that I ran back then. And, you know, I think as coaches we felt that, Hey, there was a real buzz around New York at the beginning of that year. Mm-hmm. We were 17 and 14. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, just walking down the streets of New York, that's what was great. You mm-hmm. know, people come up, hey, coach, you know, keep it going. Uh, and then unfortunately for us, Tim, Timmy, you know, our second best player yeah. comes up with a stress fracture. Yeah. Uh, and then he's out for, you know, six, seven weeks and on a stress fracture, you can't do a lot of shooting and mm-hmm. standing on it. He came back rusty, uh, uh, and then, Seven games later, we're trying to keep afloat. Right. Seven games later, KP goes in yeah. there and dunks it and tears mm-hmm. his ACL and it went downhill from there. But, uh, you know, we, we almost felt like it was a little bit of unfinished business that, uh, one of the focuses was for us was defense. And, uh, you know, with Kurt, I, I thought our assistant coaches did a great job and Kurt Rambis and Jerry Seastein, Corey Gaines. And we had that team at that point when we were 17 and 14. Uh, I think we were ranked 15th in uh, defense, mm-hmm. which was a big jump from the year before. Mm-hmm. So we felt we were on the right path, but uh, you know, so it felt a little like unfinished business for us, but that's the NBA. Some players would privately say that that first season that when Phil would come down on the court, like Phil would come down and practice and he'd be out on the court, that it was maybe a little undermining. Did, did you expect that? Did you expect he'd be – he might have a private conversation on the side with a player – there are a lot of GMs in the league who won't even go in the locker room. They, they won't go in the locker room or on the practice court. They say that is the coach's place. The front office doesn't belong there. How did you see that and how maybe it impacted maybe your authority as the head coach? You know, maybe players thought that for me. Um, it's not like that happened every day. You know, it probably happened twice, three times maybe during the year. Uh, and here you are with a guy that won nine championships and he sees uh, a little bit of you know something that we could do better in the triangle could he have maybe you know we talked all the time maybe could he have told me that but you know he's a coach at heart yeah. and uh, uh for me i said hey you know okay as, as much as i know about the triangle and played against it and you know if he sees something uh, to emphasize i i didn't have a problem with it but that might have been from players going oh, well phil's trying to coach a triangle mm-hmm. so um maybe it had a little effect but you know, to me, you know, as a player, any expertise that somebody can go out there, you know, especially something like the triangle, which is so specific to what he ran, uh, shouldn't have been that big a deal. This episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Simply Safe. 
No one should feel unsafe at home, period. Fear has no place in a place like home. That's been Simply Safe's mission from day one. You may have seen their commercial about it during the big game this year. If you didn't, you can find it online. Simply Safe blankets your whole home with protection, around the clock professional monitoring. Make sure police are on the way when you need them. The security sensors are tiny, blending in with your home so you won't even notice them. The Verge calls Simply Safe the best home security, and it's a wire cutter top pick. As more than 3 million Simply Safe customers already know, it feels good to fear less. So protect your home today. You'll get free shipping on any system order. Just visit simplysafe.com slash woge. That's simplysafe.com, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash woge, W-O-J, to protect your home and family today. Simplysafe.com slash woge. Chris Epps Porzingis, a couple weeks ago, asked for a trade. The Knicks move him out right away. That relationship was fractured from Phil's regime to the Scott Perry regime. When you think about his talent and his skill set, and now listen, injuries, staying healthy is a part of that. But in your mind, was that a guy that you could have built your entire franchise around and won at a really high level? Well, what I'll say about KP is, you know, as a as a guy I played with some great players, I played with, you know, Stockton, Malone, Kevin Johnson, Tom Chambers, these guys that you have to have a determination to want to get better, uh, to want to win, to go out there and, you know, maybe try to improve yourself in practices. KP did all those. You know, he, his mindset was, I want to be a winner. Uh, I want to be the best guy in the league. And it's not like in practice that he kind of, you know, took it easy. When we practiced, he went at it like a game. So, um, you know, can he become one of those players? You know, he's got the right the right attributes to, to get there. There was a run there, and you talked about you're walking down the street in New York. There was an excitement about what he was doing, and there was a run of weeks where he was every night at the Garden lighting it up and carrying the team. I think people forget that sometimes. I mean, it was you felt what it could be like there. Right. And it feels different than almost anywhere else. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I think, again, it's Carmelo did great things. Uh, was a great player. Now he's gone. Now we have a team that, you know, maybe isn't supposed to, uh, you know, maybe struggle. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think we were picked very, uh, very high in the predictions. But with those young guys, they just got after it. And, uh, you know, we had great leadership from uh, uh, Jarrett Jack at that time. To come in there, we were trying to trying to get Frank in there as much as we can. As a you know, he, they draft him. I think he was eighteen. He turned mm-hmm. nineteen during the summer, uh, and and he had some knee issues that he could practice only a little bit, and then all of a sudden he'd be out a little bit and had to hold him out. So uh, you know, it kind of slowed his growth a little bit. Uh, yet he made some big plays for us, hit some big threes from Porzingis. So you know, KP was showing at that point that hey, I can be the main guy on this team. You know him and Tim. Tim were Tim was having a great year to that point. So um, you know it's uh, again it's it's unfortunate, but that's the way it happens. Injuries happen, and uh, we weren't able to, to sustain it. Jeff, the coaches you played for in the NBA, Cotton Fitzsimmons and Jerry Sloan, and when you think about what it takes to be successful in this league, and nothing's more important than having good players and some great players. Like we could talk about systems and culture and about. 
nobody wins without players, and it always gets back to that. But do you have to coach differently in this day and age? The power the players have in this league, and at the end of the day, if the players don't want you there, you won't be there, right? And it's pretty rare when you think about with Jerry Sloan and the way Utah supported him. And when it went sideways with Darren Williams, there was no question who they were siding with. I don't know if that would happen now almost anywhere, but... Maybe Pop. Maybe Pop, yeah. <laughs> right? No, definitely Pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but how different is that job now than it even... Not even back to your days as a player, but even five years ago, ten years ago, is the job become a lot different? Well, it's probably different. Uh, uh, you know, I've had different coaches through my career on both spectrums of that. Cotton Fitzsimmons was, was the guy that, you know, I passed up on an 18-footer one time, and he pulled me over to the sidelines. He goes, what are you doing? It was, a, you know, I was a point guard. I, was a, I always felt I was a smart player, and it was a one-on-four. And, but, you know, everybody was back. He goes, shoot it. Okay, <laughs> you know, so he was the the confidence builder. He was probably uh, uh, that way more. And then you know, Jerry was, hey, you know, this is what we're running. Execute it. Do it the right way. So you know, it's it's probably different today's game in that they probably want more of the Cotton Fitzsimmons. Uh, just let me play. Mm-hmm. Let me get up and down the court and and uh, uh, shoot. But uh, I think a lot of these kids are coming up so young now you know they're drafting these kids that are 19 years old and you know back when i played yeah you had the superstars that were 19 years old coming out the jordan when he come i mean even jordan was a few years in college one or two or you know yeah so um guys had a background now you're having to coach more the basics you know kind of give them those ideas yet the turnover happens so much you know i think in my you know years of coaching we had a different group of guys almost every year. And so that continuity makes it tough to train these 19-year-olds to, hey, stay with it. And so you see teams out there now that have the young teams that if the organization is patient with them, um, you know, look at the, right now the, the Brooklyn Nets, you know, they've mm-hmm. they've gone that route to Philadelphia with their stars. You know, they gave it time, and, and uh, you know, now it's paying off for, for uh, Philadelphia, and it's starting to pay off for Brooklyn now. So... You know, there's that training period that you now have to go through, and that's that's probably why it's a different game now in terms of once a team sees they're out of the playoffs, they just kind of cash it in and mm-hmm. want the draft picks, uh, where I don't really feel it was that way a long time ago. Uh, so there, there's more teaching. There's more having to be patient, which you have to be more patient with the guys. It's probably less X and O's and mm-hmm. more – you know, relationship based and talking to guys and getting them through the tough times. And, uh, you know, that, that puts a different role because, you know, as a, as a coach, your, your natural instincts are probably X's and O's and what am I going to do this game? But it becomes more, uh, you know, relationship based and talking to the guys and, and showing them why. One thing I always try to tell our assistant coaches, you know, when we, when we explain things to guys of, uh, you know, how we're going to do it, tell them why. Because once guys hear why they're doing it, then they kind of understand it more and uh, rather than just telling them, hey, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. Uh, so I always try to put why, which, which gets the players thinking. Because mm-hmm. these guys, they're smart guys. You know, they, they know how to play. They like to hear the little things that, you know, as an ex-player, I always felt I was able to give them the little things, mm-hmm. to, to the little clues that I use as a player to, to help them out. When coaches get together and talk about front offices, how much of the conversation is – 
and how much has it changed in the league where the power in an organization has really shifted to the GM's position where they're dictating and a lot of times, I mean, certainly they're picking the roster, but not just doing that, at times dictating whether it's style of play or combinations or who the priority is to play, and that the coaches are constantly having to push back on having things that were just traditionally a coach's decision and his what his vision was, it's being dictated by the organization to him. Well, I, I think it's a fine balance nowadays. Um, just because when you're the coach, you know, your, your focus, if you're a competitor, is I got to win this game. You know, I don't care who's on the court with me, you know, is, is my team or who we're playing. You're trying to win the game. But, you know, I, I think I learned from the days of coaching. And that's why I, I've talked to, to my agent about, you know, the, there's a real need, I believe, for having an ex-head coach in the front office mm-hmm. because they kind of understand the dynamics on the court. Uh, the front offices, a lot of times, uh, you know, there's some uh, great ones out there, but a lot of times they, they see how an analytic might work. And that's big in our game now is analytics. So they come and try to tell the coach, hey, analytically, this works. And that some front offices with coaches have a great relationship, but the extra part of that is there's also free agency and this guy analytically might not be a guy we want to sign as a free agent. Uh, so there's a, there's always a fine balance in that. And, you know, again, it's, it's what level you're at in the league. You know, if you're working with a young, really young team that they know they're not going to win, maybe they have more patience. I think it's when you're that middle team that it gets probably a little more dicey because, Hey, we're, we're okay. We might be an eighth seed, might be a ninth seed or a seventh seed. Let's get in the playoffs, but we're not going to go farther with the group we have. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's tough to be a coach nowadays because you, you got to have that backing and, and be on the same page of what's the long term plan. You know, it's if, uh, you know, I, I think the Brett Brown is a perfect example of Philadelphia. You know, they had some, uh, was it three, four bad years, mm-hmm. and they got all this? Now look at them. You know mm-hmm. they're one of the best teams in the league. So, um, you know, does it always work out that way? You know, back in the day, Clippers had the first pick in the draft several years in a row, and it didn't work. So credit to the, the organization for picking the right guys and and being patient with it. Jeff, your first season as a head coach in the league in Phoenix in thirteen fourteen, one of the biggest turnarounds of really that decade. You know, a team that I think. You know, Ryan McDonough was a new GM. You were the new, you were the new coach. And, you know, I think even as you were, he was building the roster that year, I don't think there was an expectation you were going to compete for the playoffs. You were just going to try to get the thing better. And all of a sudden, you're in the last week of the season and you've got 48 wins and there's like one bad call in the game that maybe keeps you out. Two bad calls. Two bad calls, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Two bad calls. Uh, but that season, um, and walking in with the Suns was, you know, you were second in voting for coach of the year. I think Ryan was second in voting executive of the year, and it felt like you were onto something with the Suns. And yeah, it was it was a, a great year for us. We were predicted to not even win twenty games. You know, they took all the veterans. They it was a rebuild. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually traded uh, uh, Gortat the first day of the season. 
we're like, wait a second, we just went through training camp <laughs> and everything, and we're ready for him to be the center, and then uh, he gets traded. So what we had were, you know, uh, we had Goran Dragic, who had, you know, played in the in the league for a while, and uh, we get a young Eric Bledsoe who gets an opportunity from playing from behind Chris Paul to come over mm-hmm. to us. But everybody else were kind of role-type players. The Morris brothers were young. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gerald Green had been with several teams. So what happened was we had a lot of guys who – uh, had to step up from the different levels that they were at prior to that. Mm-hmm. And it's opportunity in this league sometimes. And uh, the hardest part, we had a lot of guys that were on one-year contracts, which could go both ways. Right. Guys could get selfish. They can say, I'm just playing for my contract. We tried to really stress to these guys, and I think I did it the first day, said, look, you know, we understand all you guys, it's, it's new. You're going to be asked to do more than you've ever asked, been asked before. You know, a lot of you, the contracts at, at end at the end of the year. I said, but what we have to do to give us a chance to win is play together as a team and somehow put that out of your mind. If you start thinking about what you can do to, to increase your contract, it's not going to happen. And I gave him examples of you know, uh, a Howard Isley, a Shannon Anderson, mm-hmm. a Greg Ostertag, who were kind of role players for, you know, Greg was starting for us. Uh, but it was a team that won. And they all got huge contracts. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, other GMs, other teams are looking for guys from winning teams. They're not going to pay guys that are on a bad team just because they so, threw so, up right. some. Someone has to yeah. score points on a yeah, bad team, Yeah, someone's right? going to score yeah. points. And so I said, that the best we can, if we can put all that aside, just go out there, play together, have fun, uh, and see where it goes. And, you know, that the guys bought into that. They really did. Um you know, we we had the Morris brothers playing off the bench. We, I felt our bench was uh, our big advantage. Our starters would hold their own against these teams, mm-hmm. and then the bench would take a, take advantage. And you know, it, it was a fun year because the guys they competed hard in practice. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get better. They wanted to prove themselves in this league, and uh, they played together. And you know, I think once you once you have a couple wins like that, and all of a sudden it snowballs, and now they have the confidence, and they kept going. And you know, it came down to that game in Dallas. And uh, we were battling for that last spot, and there were two charge calls. Both of them went against us. When they reviewed them, both of them were wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, we could have been in the playoffs, but uh, I was very proud of the, the coaching staff and the, and the players that year to just go out there and play together as a team, and they played the right way. And as a coach, you know, if you can get guys to play the right way, that's that's the fun part of it. This episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell tickets, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the Woj Pod a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio Sign up at wojpodcast.robinhood.com. 
was the beginning of it going the other way for you guys when you when you brought in Isaiah Thomas and you said, okay, we're going to try to play these three guards. And I think part of the thinking was there was a gap in the Bledsoe contract discussions. You weren't sure whether what the future of Bledsoe was. I think Isaiah was partly an insurance policy on how that went. But then you signed Bledsoe and... I remember coming to training camp at Northern Arizona and it was right at the beginning and, you know, Isaiah was excited to be there. He was, Sacramento had not been, you know, I think he had felt like they just never saw him as a starter there and he comes and his role was not necessarily going to be that with you. But it seemed pretty quickly that the three of them, there was frustration there and a sense that this thing is going to, we got to get out ahead of this. And the organization didn't get ahead of anticipating the, the issues with them. And all of a sudden, Dragic said, I, I want out. And then it spiraled, right? Yeah. You know, I think part of that was Eric, uh, they had some contract negotiations, I believe, and, yeah. and they weren't happy. And then he went dark and nobody could, you know, he wouldn't talk to anybody. And there was talk that maybe he just sits out the year and becomes the, the you know, free agent. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there was something, the fact that Isaiah, you know, at a, at a good price could be mm-hmm. had. Um, and, you know, they explained it to him that he was probably going to be a six-man. You know, Eric, we had a great year the year before. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Eric comes back. Now you have three guys, and, you know, that it probably started that first game in L.A. where we beat the Lakers by 30 points, first game of the year in L.A., and all the guys played well. And then Isaiah in the, in, was playing well also. And then in the fourth quarter, because we were up by so much, I just let him in and stay, finish the game out. And he ended up with 30 points. And I think he had a comment in the paper after the game saying, I should be the starter. <laughs> you know, so, and Isaiah's a great player. And yeah. he, he went on to, to Boston to prove it. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, I tried my best that year to try to, you know, keep them all happy in terms of, uh, you know, you, we had that lineup of three guards out there a lot just to, cause they were all great players. Yeah. And so, you know, with that, that whole theory of trying to keep your best players on the court, unfortunately they're all in the same position. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, you know, it, uh, um, it didn't make everybody happy. Everybody was a little upset about, mm-hmm. uh, not being, uh, you know, maybe the main guy. Right, right. And I always thought one of the destabilizing things for that team or that period was the, the following summer when you were chasing LaMarcus Aldridge in free agency and you were trying to clear cap space. And, you know, looking back, you never – listen, I, I know Ryan McDonough knew that this was potentially the case. And, like, the owner is involved there. Robert Sarver is involved in deal-making and he's he's involved in a lot of it. But when you split up the Morris twins, it was basically we're clearing space for LaMarcus, who is not committed to us. There was basically a salary dump to Detroit. Marcus Morris goes to Detroit. And now Markeith, both of them had signed an extension and almost treated it like it was interesting. As I recall, it was kind of an interesting negotiation where they basically said we're almost like we're kind of one entity. We're going to share the money. Essentially, I don't want to speak for them, but I think there was a sense of you're really negotiating – it's two separate contracts, but we're together. We're twins. And when Marcus was traded, Markeef did not respond well to that, and it was hard to ever get him back connected with you, with the group. Yeah, you know, again, we, we had been talking to him throughout the whole summer. He wouldn't come back early. You know, he was mad at the organization yeah. for trading Marcus. You know, but we had been talking to him mm-hmm. the whole time, and, uh, you know, we felt that he would come back. And, you know, I tried to tell him, say, you know, come back, play. If that's 
really you're feeling, you know, I'll try my best to, to talk to the front office about, you know, mm-hmm. getting you traded if that's really what you want. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we need you. And, you know, it, again, it's one of those situations where I, I think in the league, uh, it's always easy to look hindsight behind and say, oh, we should have done this or done, mm-hmm. should have done that. But, you know, what happened? Uh, yeah. And, you know, there was a wanting to step up from being that kind of medium range team. You know, even with all the stuff that went on that second year with the three guys and then everybody get traded and, you know, bringing Brandon Knight and then he got hurt right away. So we we're back to having only one point guard from having three. Now we had one uh, in Eric. And uh, I think maybe even that year Eric ended up having a knee issue. So we still were, I think, 39 and 43. So we we're right in that yeah, kind of yeah. 500 range. And, you know, that's a time when I think the thought is, okay, do we, are we going to be a 500 team or do we take this chance of taking to that next right. level? And, you know, they signed Tyson Chandler thinking that his signing would bring in LaMarcus. LaMarcus, yeah. Uh, it didn't happen, didn't work out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can't, I don't think you can blame anybody for taking a look at that. You know, it just didn't work out. I mean, you, listen, you guys are awfully, I mean, close. There's a lot of close in the history of everything, but <laughs> you were really close with LaMarcus Aldridge. I, I did a long piece after his free agency, and I had been told during the process, you know, he was going back and forth in the Spurs and Suns, and, you know, he had two different choices. I'm going to be the guy in Phoenix, or I'm going to go to Spurs and be a part of something that's already very established, and Texas was home, and he had family there that was important to him, and I know that Pat Riley had a meeting with him. Miami didn't have the space to sign him, but Riley could just get a meet. Riley's the only guy who could get a meeting with you and they don't really even have space, but he took a meeting with him and I think Pat was really selling him on sacrificing for something bigger than yourself and being a part of something bigger. And I think Pat really wanted him to maybe do like a one-year deal stay and then come back in the market the next year when Miami had space and he wasn't going to do that. But I think what Pat, and he, I think it was inadvertent, what Pat was ultimately selling him on and talking about Miami, he sold him on the Spurs. And that was the last thing LaMarcus had in his head and picked San Antonio where he might have, and you guys had made that trade to clear space and you were right there. And like you said, and then all of a sudden, you know, that third year, that second year, right, you win 39 games. You know, if you're in the East, you're, that's a playoff team. It wasn't, a, it was, it was a good team. 40 wins in the West is a good team, especially at that point. And then sort of those free agent pursuits in that summer sort of creating space kind of destabilized the roster a little bit, right? And then it, yeah. it, it went Thanks, south. Pat. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but uh, um, again, I, you know, it was probably wishful thinking. You know, I, I felt that he wasn't going to come because, you know, there was, from what I had heard, uh, the family and he had a son in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when a guys get to certain ages, I think it, uh, that family piece becomes even more important. And, you know, LaMarcus, I don't know how old he was at that time, but mm-hmm. he was, you know, he wasn't 22 or 23. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was, that was a big part of, you know, the importance of being around his family and his kid. And, you know, again, it's, it's teams are doing that now. The Knicks, you know, they've, pre- they've prepped for having, uh, two max spaces. So, you know, uh, it could be a great move, uh, if they get two guys, yeah. you know, so it's, it's chances you take. <laughs> Sometimes it pays off. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. I don't know who said it, but somebody said to me in the NBA, you have to be able, at all times, you have to be able to sell either winning or hope. You have to be able to have one of those two you're selling, right? And if you're stuck in the that other place is the hard part of the league. What was the challenge as a coach 
Robert Sarver is an owner who is hands-on, who's involved, who's in the locker room, who's wants to make decisions. I remember spending some time with him that first season when it was going really well and him talking about, hey, I see the mistakes I made. I saw the, maybe the impetuousness that had hurt him before. And that first year he allowed, it seemed like that first season, he allowed Ryan to make moves. He allowed you to coach the team. And then when things aren't going as well, he's reacting to it. What kind of challenge is that for a coach? Well, I think it comes to the, you know, the patience. You're going to have ups and downs. And, and Robert, you know, took over the team when they had Nash and Stoudemire and, uh, Sean Marion, Joe Johnson and, and had a great team. Uh, and Steve was fantastic with those guys. So, and I think we probably all fall into that a little bit. I know I fell into that, uh, being on a team that we didn't win a championship, but, you know, we played in the finals twice against the Bulls. Uh, I saw great players with like Carl and John, uh, work every day. And you kind of get this thing in the back of your head of, of, okay, what are we playing for? Part of the reason I retired, I could have played a couple more years, but I said, we're not going to win a championship. We're all like 37 years old now. You know, we're going to be good. We're going to win in the first round. We'll lose in the second round. I'm here to play for a championship. So I think we all kind of fall into this, how we want to win a championship. And so you see players that are good or, you know, even very good players and you're going, okay, they're not going to get us to the finals. And do you, and that's probably one of the lessons I've learned is you can't, you got to go with those guys for a while. And I should have known better. And I look at my Phoenix team that I played on. Uh, you know, we had Chambers and Kevin Johnson. We were winning 55 games every year. Uh, went to the Western Conference finals twice or three times and, and lost. But, uh, they found an opportunity at that point to trade for Charles Barkley. He kept main guys and then add a Barkley. Now, unfortunately for me, it was me that had to go to <laughs> Philly, right, yeah. but it was a great move for them at, at that time. And so, you know, the patience you have to have that we went four years of winning that 55 game. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, Jerry Colangelo didn't panic after two years and say, look, we got to break this up now. Mm-hmm. He let us all play together and then it didn't happen and an opportunity came about. So, you know, I think we all are looking to win a championship, and uh, again, it has to go back to patience. It's not that easy. Just you know, and luck sometimes gets with it, where you get these great players, get a great draft pick, uh, and it turns out right away. But with Robert, you know, I think it's uh, uh, he's seen what it takes to get back to that level, and that's where he wants to go. And he's competitive. You know, he's competitive in, in his businesses, and uh, I like Robert as a person. You know. Uh, I like Jim Dolan as a person. You know, we, uh, uh, we got along great, but, you know, it's, it's when they see things that their minds are champions, it's got to build. You know, it's almost like you have to go to the playoffs. I'd hate to see, uh, you know, like a, a Portland, if they lose in the first round, change up this mm-hmm. soon. You know, look, look for an opportunity. If, if something happens where you can improve your team, fine. If not, stay on that thing till an opportunity mm-hmm. happens. Sometimes teams just blow it up and then it's hard to get back there. Right. Right. Yeah. Everyone's always, Blow it up, start over, and you're going. Phew. Portland's a good example of that. Like this is a team that's winning in the high 40s and 50. Go, you know, has advanced in the playoffs, and you know what they're always trying to do is, you know, they have Lillard and McCollum, and they're trying to find that third guy, right, and piece together a deal or something without giving up one of those two. And you know, they were very involved. You know, Otto Porter last week and didn't quite get him, but but there is always such a call in this league to just blow it up, and it's like. It is hard to put it 
back together. They could get how many lottery picks could they get in Portland, and they're not going to probably get another Damian Lillard, right? right and right. I think there is always a call in this league to just. I mean, rebuilding is ugly, and gutting it is ugly, and it's very. It usually doesn't end up like. Well, it's ended I was going to say now, now people are going to see the Sixers and say, "Hey, that's how, that's what we need to do." Yeah, um, but you know they have two phenomenal players in, in Simmons and Embiid. Uh, so, Jeff, the opposite end of that, and you think of you mentioned going to Utah. You were in Philly for two years after the, you were part of the Barkley trade, and being a part of that Jazz team that was goes to the finals twice. And you're playing against maybe the greatest team in history. I think there's nobody who still would try to make that case. What was it like to be a part of, you know, you had to run the gauntlet in the West to get out of the West. It wasn't preordained you'd be in the finals. But when you think about the mental strength it took every day to be sort of building toward getting that opportunity to play them once and then to beat them in that era, I think people appreciate, like, what it took to compete against that Chicago team and take them to the limit, like you couldn't come much closer than your group did. Yeah, I mean, as a as a player, you know, you want to play against the best. You know, you want to win a championship beating the best. And I thought the first year, you know, we finally got there. All of us, John, Carl, John, made the shot and against the mm-hmm. Rockets to, to send us to the finals. And you know, it's funny because playing with those two guys and playing for Jerry Sloan, very you know, ultimate professionals. I think Carl missed. Up until that last Lakers year, I think he missed 11 games. Somebody said in his 19 years with Utah, all 11 were suspensions. You know, I think he missed one game for an injury. You know, and John had the little knee injury where he probably missed 12 games in 20 years. You know, so these guys every day, and it's not like they didn't practice. They practiced like it was a game. And just to see the professionalism of those guys, uh, to get to that team and have Jerry who, he was awesome. You know, he, uh, uh, you know, he'd get on you in games. Uh, he let you make decisions within the framework of the offense. You know, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, now you have rules for pick and rolls, how you're going to guard this, how you're going to get that. And Jerry says, I don't care. Just do it. <laughs> you know, uh, keep him out of the middle and just get over or under however you can do it. Just do it. And to go to the finals against the Bulls the first year, I thought they were the better team. Mm-hmm. You know, that was our first year there. I didn't think we were as good. The mm-hmm. second year, we were on a roll from all-star break on. I think we were something like 38 and 5. Mm-hmm. Went through the playoffs. We swept the Lakers. I think we were, uh, back then you only had a three-game first round. Mm-hmm. So I think we were 10 and uh, 11 and 1 going into the finals. Which, uh, go back to that for a second. That was, having those first, those short series in the first rounds were such, I mean, think about that, right? I mean, it's. We see it in baseball, right? You play that one game, one. But what was it like to walk into a series? Because all of a sudden you lose game one, and all hell breaks loose for yeah. you, right? Yeah, if you're the home team. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, uh, there's more upsets then. You know, yeah. over seven games, the best team's mm-hmm. going to win, right? You know, so it kind of eliminates the. You're going to get one every once in a while, but uh, when you have a five game series, like you said, if you lose one of those first two games at home, mm-hmm. now you're going on the road. You lose mm-hmm. game, you know, three mm-hmm. on the road. You're playing for your life. Mm-hmm. So uh, it did make it more interesting, and we were a big part of that uh, when I was with the Phoenix Suns. It seemed like we played the Utah Jazz every single year as a 4-5 matchup. One year we had the home court advantage, one year they did, and, and you know, it was there was no room for error. Um, and I think what happened in that second finals, I always said I thought we were the better team. Went through the playoffs. They had a tough series with Indiana. Uh, it might have gone seven games, I think. and But we had 10 days off. And we were playing at such a high level, but, you know, what do you do for 10 days? Yeah, we scrimmage a couple days, 
but I felt like we lost a little bit of our edge. And, uh, you know, we won the first game probably because the Bulls were tired. They, mm-hmm. I think they won the second game. And, you know, it was a battle from then, and obviously Michael makes that shot to, mm-hmm. to win it. But I felt we just – we were probably at about 98% of what we were before that. We just lost a little edge. And to beat Michael Jordan in that group with Pippen and those guys, you, you know, you had to be 100%. This episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Tommy John. If your Valentine's Day surprise consists of a bouquet of supermarket roses and drugstore chocolates, then the only surprise is that you think that's memorable. Rethink what a Valentine's gift can be with Tommy John, the most comfortable men's and women's underwear on the entire planet. A gift that's not only unexpected, but genuinely needed. Tommy John is redefining comfort for men and women with luxuriously soft, feather-light, moisture-wicking underwear that moves with you not against you. With no pinching, no bunching, and no writing up, it's no wonder Tommy John has sold over 6 million pairs. If you're still looking for a Valentine's Day gift, their limited edition loungewear and underwear, including matching his and her sets, are the perfect alternative to boring and played out cliche gifts. Last year, the limited edition collection sold out in less than a week, so don't wait until the last minute. And with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear its free guarantee, if you don't love your first pair, you'll get a full refund. So there's no excuse not to buy the gift of comfort they truly deserve. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Shop limited edition Valentine's Day gift sets and get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash Woj. That's TommyJohn.com slash Woj, W-O-J, for 20% off. Only at TommyJohn.com, TommyJohn.com. You were a Chicago kid. You grew up in Chicago. Your dad's longtime high school coach there. What was it like going home to play against that team? I'm sure every guy you went to high school with and grew up with, and they're all Bulls fans, <laughs> right? And uh, and here you were, the guy who doesn't get a you know you know walks on at Iowa State, almost goes undrafted, gets taken later in the second round, and becomes an NBA All Star. And you're coming back. I'm sure you heard a lot of growing up there. He's not good enough. You're a good high school player, but not. And then you're coming back as part of that team. What was that like at that point in your career? Well, I didn't think anything about what people thought of me mm-hmm. not making it before mm-hmm. that. You know, I think it was more of all the friends I had and everybody that I ran into said, "I wish you luck, but I hope you lose." You know, <laughs> I said, "Well, I under- I get it. I get it. You know, they're Bulls fans, and you know, uh, we always joke because I think one of the games my kids." Uh, uh, wore a Michael Jordan jersey to, you know, they were Michael Jordan fans, you know, so, uh, again, it was, it was a great, as a player, you, you, the thrill of playing is competing and competing against the best guys. And that's why those two years were so much fun because, you know, it was like a chess match every game. You know, you, you had to make adjustments. Uh, you know, what are they going to do here? Uh, they're a very la- long team with, you know, Michael Scotty. Uh, the Harper was on that team with his mm-hmm. lane, Ku coach. Uh, they had a ton of length that they could switch, and so it made mm-hmm. things difficult. 